Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. You know, to understand bats and to, and to, to learn from them in the field, you, you really have to strive. That really takes effort. And I suppose that, you know, on the geek ladder, the, uh, the bat workers are, are, are above the hedgehog and badger workers. So I'm going to get myself in so much trouble for this bit. Well, here we are. A year after we first launched BatChat, we are now bringing you Series 2. And what a fantastic lineup we have for you between now and March. As events unfolded back in the spring, we weren't sure when exactly we were going to be launching this series, as various interviews got pushed back and rescheduled. Indeed, some interviews we had planned will have to wait for Series 3. However, like everyone else, we have made the best of the situation, and with lockdown suddenly thrust upon us back in March, everyone's diaries became a little quieter, and so we seized the opportunity to make this recording with the president of the Bat Conservation Trust, Chris Packham, over an internet phone call, something that is now all too familiar to most of us. Just before we get going, we'd like to say welcome back to all of our listeners, and if this is the first time you're listening to us, a very warm welcome. If you don't follow the Bat Conservation Trust on social media, you can find us on most platforms. The links are in the show notes to this episode, so give us a follow. You'll see that at the moment we're really busy promoting bats this Halloween, such as challenging people to take part in the Great British Bat Bake. You can find out how to get involved in that from the link in the show notes. I'm Steve Rowe and as I mentioned just now we did this interview in March over an internet call so apologies that the sound quality isn't quite what you would expect from BatChat but we hope that for this one occasion you'll understand. So without further delay I'm delighted to welcome to BatChat the naturalist, presenter and campaigner Chris Packham, President of the Bat Conservation Trust. So Chris thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join us. How are you guys coping during the lockdown now that your diaries become a lot clearer? Presumably living in the new forest are you managing to get outdoors at the moment? Yes, we are. We're very fortunate that we've got a small garden, but uh, a large wood in in which the house is situated. So we're able to safely walk our dogs and and get some exercise every day. Uh, The garden is surrounded by fields and and woods, so there's plenty of wildlife in and out. The bird feeders are are still busy um, and lots of wildflowers coming up that I planted in the garden. So, yeah, we're very, very fortunate to be able to access nature from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to sleep. And we're doing what we can to share that with other people. Megan, my stepdaughter, who's self-isolating with me, and I have been doing a daily uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and BBC Facebook uh, broadcast for half an hour on our mobile phones 
using Skype, um, mixed by Fabian Housen, who is self-isolating in, in, in Norwich. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's going well. A lot of people seem to be enjoying our little nature broadcasts every morning. We've had guests on. We had Wildlife Cameraman this morning. We've had Michaela Strath. We've got Yolo Williams coming up. So we're trying to get as many people to chip in using this very low-fi technology so that we can share some of the joy that we're getting from nature at this time when it's difficult to find much joy in the mainstream media you know yeah i have to say i was quite impressed with the uh, the the broadcasting abilities because you were flipping between all sorts of different people between yourselves and bits of of recorded clips and then like you say guest presenters so yeah that was really really good i mean it sounds like you've got a, a lovely area on your on your doorstep have you managed to do a bat survey on your local patch and and if you have what species of bat have you recorded there yeah, we have, of course. Um, at the moment, and um, the last few nights, it's been really cold here, actually, mm. overnight, bitterly cold, northerly winds. And the only animals that have been active have been common and soprano pipistrels. We've been out. We've been trying to film something for our little podcast. <laughs> so uh, we've been out with the with the bat detector, and that's all we've managed to pick up. Um, during the summer, you know, well, sorry, you know, later in the year when mm. things warm up, we, we have serotines and noctules here. Um, the, the wood, that I'm, I've always been disappointed. I'd, I'd hope that there would be barber-style betchtines in, in the wood. We do have them relatively close by in, in, in the New Forest and in other areas. Yeah. Um, but it's just those common uh, species that we have in and around the house. Uh, occasionally, we get the pips roosting in uh, an old stables, dilapidated stables building, which is adjacent to where we are. Um, no sign of activity at the moment. That's more summer thing. But, um, yeah, I mean... I, I, I had been spending some time in France prior to that and had a fantastic serotine roost in, in the house in France. But, of course, no danger of getting there this spring. <laughs> so I hope that they've all got through the winter and, and they're probably having a happy time because there's no humans messing things up. Like they, there are holes in the house, which means animals can come and go to, from the main body of the house. And my f- fondest memories was watching uh, a, a European uh, Cup final um, and, and having serotines flying around <laughs> above me inside the house and then finding their way out through these holes which are there so it's a you know it's a house that we share with animals they come in and out of the roof space and well pretty much in and out of the house so yeah but i'll miss that this spring i'm afraid that sounds amazing have you ever done a count of that serotine roost over in france well the the, the max that we ever had was that we could determine they all come out pretty quickly and they do sort of tend to go back in again so it's always difficult to know without you know uh, becoming more intrusive and taking interventions but you know I, i would say between 12 and 15 uh, was the probably the, the peak that we had which was pretty good i thought actually I'm, and i'm not at yeah. all jealous at my end i have to say <laughs> living up in derbyshire we get them very rarely but yeah we don't have any roost so yeah pretty jealous up here to be honest yeah nice bat the serotonin as well really nice coloring i mean mm. when i've been fortunate enough to see see them in other people's hands you know they are extraordinary and you know all of our bat species have their own characters and appeal of course um a lot of people's favorites is are the long ears of course so once those ears are erected they have a real charm to them some people even describe them as cute whereas things like <laughs> barberstel i suppose and you know are, 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 are not such an attractive aesthetically speaking bat but you know it's not about looks it's about function their form has a function and those ears and noses and everything else are there for a reason and, and i you know for me i can i can overcome any you know physiological inadequacies in the look state if, <laughs> if a bat's fascinating and of course the horseshoe bats again you know for many people i suppose they wouldn't see them as a necessarily an attractive animal but they are truly fantastic and again mm. i've had a great good fortune to get to grips with those in the past at various roosts with licensed bat workers etc 
great stuff and obviously we're recording this during lockdown at the moment so for everyone who is stuck at home have you got any ideas for batty projects that people could be doing during lockdown well bats are mobile um you know that's the first thing and if you are in an area where there are large gardens uh, or perhaps you're near water you know things like Dorbentons would be out hunting or even if you're in an area where bats are moving from one place to another as we know they do across that countryside hmm. so if you could be in a bat corridor so it's always worth going out into the garden and and using a bat detector if you have one uh, um, obviously, they come in a range of um, prices and a range of sophistication. Um, you don't need to spend enormous sums of money to, to be able to record bats and listen to what the, the sounds or the transformed sounds that they're making. Or if you are intending to take a, a far keener interest in, in bats, you could spend out. And, and the, the equipment that we've got these days is, is so sophisticated. It's remarkable. But blimey, if you'd have told me that when I was a, a young bat-obsessed boy of five, that one day I could have a Star Trek gadget in my hand which would not only transform that sound and make it audible also map where the bat is and tell me which species it was with pretty fair degree of accuracy Hmm. i'd have been astonished so we're very fortunate in some ways although we're presiding over declines in animals and we have grave concerns about you know our our bat populations as well um, we do have in our hands the technology now to learn a lot more about them a lot more quickly than we did when i first instigated an interest in bats and just picking up on that point you were saying how things have changed since you were a young boy what what else apart from the technology side of things what have you seen change in the bat conservation movement in that time well bat conservation i i I think i mean i was born in 1961 by 1964 and 5 i was bat obsessed Um, i think that i was drawn to animals which were inaccessible to me like many you know young people we we, we are tempted by the exotic Mm. it wasn't overseas animals for me it wasn't tigers and and lions and whales it it was things which needed to be on the brink of being tangible and 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 when i opened my ladybird books and my field guides my observers uh you know books of british mammals um i could see the brown rats they were in the garden i could see foxes uh, occasionally my father would point them out when we were when we were walking um but bats that they were they i mean urban southampton at that point was devoid of bats certainly from my perspective and so i would you know gaze longingly out of my bedroom window into the dusk hoping to see something flit by it never did um And I would read extensively about them. They were fascinating because they came out at night, because of their echolocation, all of these things that I was grappling to understand as a a young naturalist. Um, And then the pictures of them, they just looked so so weird, you know, so alien to the animals that I could encounter. I think that that was their uh, allure. And in order to, to placate me, my mother bought me a succession of rubber bats on pieces of elastic <laughs> they were sort of I, I, I imagine people hung them in their cars I don't know what they did with them but but for me they were my plastic pets and I had uh, any number of these things at that time fabricated in Hong Kong uh, which they would buy in the local pet shop uh, eventually the dog would get them and chew them up and I'd be in tears and she'd have to quickly get me another plastic bat so it, it, I, I was an obsessional child I'm an obsessional adult so and bats were there at that point and and that interest you know never faded um 
but it was eventually sated. My father took me camping in the New Forest, and I have you know very, very powerful memories of, I was seven years old, of, of what happened and where we were and how it happened. And he had a, a, a small silver torch. And we at that stage, when you were camping in the New Forest, you bought a permit and you could camp anywhere, that you weren't restricted to campsites. This was mid-60s. Hmm. And we camped on the side of a little stream. I know exactly the spot. I've been back there. And... Um, and we crawled out of the tent and he shone the torch across the water and bats, presumably Dor Bentons, were flitting backwards and forwards. I, I, I mean, I, I could have burst. I was so, so excited. You know, the batteries eventually went flat because I refused to go back in the tent until they did. And we'd, we'd had finally a, a bat encounter. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you. It was like I was on another planet. I couldn't sleep at all. I couldn't sleep because I was so, you know, enchanted with being out in the woods and all the noises. But, you yeah, know, I, eventually I dreamt of those bats and I've never forgotten that moment with me and my dad laying there on that little bank watching those Dorbentons flit across the water. It was just magical. And is it that lifelong interest that's made you want to become the president of BCT back in 2006? Yeah, I think so. And I think that, that let's be honest about it. I mean, that was the mid 60s. Hmm. Um, bat science didn't develop that quickly. I mean, it certainly lagged behind other sciences that were accessible to me. Um, bats remained inaccessible to workers. Uh, they, and they're not an easy species to work with, certainly from a hands-off point of view, and certainly in the UK where our diversity isn't great and most of our species are pretty small. Um, and so when it came to sort of learning more about bats, I mean, I learned a lot more about foxes and badgers through the you know, ecological and behavioural work that was taking place through the you know 70s and 80s then i learned about bats yeah. and and then when you know the technologies evolved and and people recognized that bats were important as indicator species and they were important because certain species were becoming rare etc then the, the sort of focused work in studying them really picked up and of course that you know, once again, sort of pricked up my ears. You know, here I was able to learn things about animals which were I, I was moving about. You know, and they were moving about in my community. I'd see them, but we still weren't learning that much about them. So, they've. I think to some extent, that's even the case today. When we look at our, you know, our abilities to survey bat populations, it's still not as good as birds. We don't have the the numbers of volunteers. We don't have the degrees of accuracy. Uh, quite yet that we have when it comes to bird surveys so in terms of their distribution and population etc we're we can't say that bats are on a par with birds in the uk and the uk is one of the best known areas in the world when it comes to understanding its wildlife population so there's still work to be done and that i think is again is is part of the allure you know it's you get well i was about to say you get bored with badgers and, <laughs> and it would be heresy i've never got bored with a badger but it's harder to learn new things about badgers than it's harder to learn new things about bats. And I love learning new things. And we know what use bats are in terms of what they do for us from an insect control point of view. But what about in terms of monitoring the health of the planet's ecosystems and other ecosystem services? Yeah, well, as we know, you know, indicator species are incredibly important. Um, so and, and, and very often we can make subjective judgments which lead on to empirical research. And so that's important, too. Um, you know, the moth snowstorm, as we now call it, when we were driving around, as my father would have experienced that with me uh, when we drove out to the New Forest that night all those years ago, our windscreen would have been splattered with all sorts of insects. Mm. We don't see that anymore. And, and the, uh, we don't see as many bats, uh, uh, obviously. 
obviously anymore. But by looking at the you know the, those keystone species in in the and those monitored species, yeah, we can you know pick up an, an idea of what's going on. Having said that, in recent years, you know, people have, have made great inroads into understanding our insect declines. We know that in you know, certain areas that work's been done in Germany and France, we're looking at 70% decline in insects um, in the last 25 years, that, which is obviously going to have a profound effect on everything that eats them, bats, birds, etc. So, you know, it, it, these are worrying times, but, you know, I'm heartened by the fact that the science is being done, it's being published, and now, increasingly, that information is being disseminated. You've got people like me talking about it on, on, on television. You've got people writing about it. it. It makes the news. You know, I think those insect declines were very widely covered in all media. So I'm not suggesting that we're doing anything about it or, or, or we're doing anything rapidly enough yet, but we can't claim to be ignorant anymore. And, of course, when it comes to our, our bat species, um, we have seen an enormous growth in interest in bats. When I was a, even when I was a teenager, and uh, I, I had my biology teacher, who was a great mentor, John Buckley from Britain Park, where I was being schooled at the time. You know, he he was very you know good on good on his bats for that time. And we would go out and we would look at roost, and we would flick up stones to tempt noctules to swoop down, and and all of those sorts of naughty things <laughs> that, we, that naturalists did in those days. You know, um, and then of course bats got protected. In, in, with the Wildlife and Countryside Act, which was great. And since then, a, enormous numbers of people have, you know, put a lot of work into trying to look after them, not least the people who run all the bat hospitals, which are brilliant for engagement. I mean, that was one thing that I, I couldn't do. The bats that I actually met when I was a kid, i.e. firsthand, smelled mm. them, got very close to them, were, were, were fruit bats hanging in the pet shop, which were still sold as pets at that point. It was years later, you know, and, and, and there was a man called David and Madge Goodall, and they were two bat workers in Hampshire who I initially met at the Southampton Natural History Society, and they became very bat orientated and they would look after injured bats and then use them for engagement and education um and and it was only then when i you know I was able to sort of you know literally get to within centimeters of, of one of these creatures and get the kind of views that i'd fantasized about for years and and that work that's done by bat hospitals is 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 absolutely brilliant because again it is about that in, in engagement they do have those animals which unfortunately can't go back to the wild but act as great ambassadors for all of their you know wild counterparts and i mean in terms of those volunteers what what message do you have for all the volunteers out there who give up their spare time for the local bat groups and for the national bat munchen program well, I'm in awe of their endeavours. Um, British conservation would not exist without volunteers. Volunteers, you know, do the vast majority of the work and they do it with extraordinary dedication and and, and, and great expertise. And that's a, a legacy of the fact that we in the UK have this long-standing interest in natural history and, and people do immerse themselves in it. And thankfully, there are other obsessive personalities, people who, who like me, just get into something and stay into it and, and do everything they can to learn everything about it. And, and because of that obsessive nature, they want to tell everyone else about it. And that's what they do. So yeah the the the, the bat workers and volunteers are a, a force and without their um energies we, we we would be way way behind and again you've got to contrast the uk with what's going on on the continent you know that history 
of manifesting that sort of interest in the natural world isn't there even in France, you know, in, in, in Spain, quite good in Germany and in, in, in the Netherlands and parts of Scandinavia, but still can't hold a torch to the UK. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's fantastic. And, and together and with, you know, under the guidance of things like the Bat Conservation Trust, which have standardised surveys, improved map, mapping techniques, etc., etc., we have begun to get a much better idea of what's happening in, in the world of our bats in the UK, but only through the work of those volunteers. We, I mean, can you imagine, we, we couldn't, if we were struggling to raise funds, you know, to do some of the very basic things that we need to do for bats, we'd never come up with enough to, to pay all of those people. Mm. So no, we we must, we must be eternally grateful for their endeavours. And Bat Conservation Trust is 30 years old this year. Where do you see the Bat Conservation Trust in another 30 years' time? Do you think there'll even still be a need for BCT? I fear that there will always be a need. I, I think that, you know, we will need to shape a new normal when it comes to our world following the, the, the COVID epidemic. Mm. Um, and it will offer us opportunities to do so. It will offer us opportunities to 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 have a healthier world um and i think that you know if we will have to draw some good out of this very very bad um and what that good i think in some ways should be is reshaping a world where we we as a species are not as vulnerable and that means reshaping a world where other species are not vulnerable too because of our interlinking with them because of our necessary you know yeah, you know, the development of, the, of an understanding that we are part of the global ecosystem, and 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 you know, and with that ecosystem needs to function, and and things like bats are part of that. Well, like everything, every single thing is part of that functional ecosystem. So, I, I fear that this will teach us some hard lessons. I hope that we learn them, but I imagine that you know, developing an interest in um, and developing an understanding of applying scientific work and protection will be required for some considerable time. So yes, I see the Bat Conservation Trust has a future. Um, Technologies will shape that, there's no doubt at all. Remote monitoring, as we know, has come in in the last few years. People put their little, um, you know, essentially microphones um, in in, in their back gardens. They take the data, it's crunched, and and we learn which species have have, have, have flown over. Um, it's, It's a lot more accurate and it's a lot easier than standing there with binoculars and developing a lifelong uh, you know expertise in in trying to identify a fast moving flitting silhouette so you know one can only hope that those sorts of technologies will improve but equally i think that we need to you know lead to improvements when it comes to proactive uh, and preventive additive conservation i mean we should be working i think a lot harder with home builders now to make sure that you know including bird and bat boxes is mandatory in the construction of new properties that's something that hasn't happened we still haven't got swift bricks into into new buildings um, as a mandatory thing so i think that the you know we need to ramp it up and i imagine that the conservation trust may have to be a little bit more campaigning than it than it has been um in 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 recent years and certainly who knows again we've got you know after covid presumably at some point brexit brexit will come back to the table Mm. and and when it comes to you know reaffirming all of that legislation which protects our wildlife and and should go further then the bat conservation trust should be playing a forthright role there because of its expertise 
And in terms of, you know, that idea you picked up on of, of reshaping our world, it feels in the last couple of years that the idea of rewilding has really captured the imagination of large parts of the population. Do you think the tide is turning and that we'll see rewilding projects bringing our wildlife back to the sort of levels that they used to be? And how do you see such projects benefiting bats? Well, rewilding, I think, got off to a shaky start because everyone was talking about wolves. Yeah. But, you, but you can't put wolves on a pasture field and, and, and think they're going to survive. They're going to nip next door, make a nuisance of themselves. Um, the pasture field is where we're going to start or whatever piece of land that we've got, whether it's upland, lowland, wet or whatever. But rewilding has got to start at the bottom. It's, it's a ground up process and we can't get carried away about putting in you know top of the food chain predators until we've got an ecosystem that can support them so i think rewilding has come of age i think it's sort of you know it's it's had an awakening um it's also come to its senses and it, and it's become a lot more pragmatic and practical but yes i think the re, rewilding is a conservation tool i mean essentially it's been going on for some time anyway but as a as a buzzword in conservation um it's it's now at the forefront and it's one of a number of tools that we should be implementing as rapidly and as widely as possible because we we know that if we put rewilded areas in the right place and we link them together we can build a more sustainable landscape we know that a lot of the the parts of that landscape are not maximizing their capacity to support biodiversity including bats at this point Hmm. and we know of the benefits of that so I think the problem that we have in, in, in the UK, because rewilding Europe is advancing far more rapidly than rewilding projects in, in the UK, is that the vast majority of land in the UK is privately owned. In fact, there's only one other country in the world where, where more land is owned by less people than the UK. So when it comes to sort of getting our hands on the land, the space to instigate these sorts of projects, it, it's difficult for us. We have to win the hearts and minds of those land owners and managers. Managers. And, and starting off by talking about releasing wolves didn't, you know, didn't, uh, you know, appease them. <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, it's an educational exercise that we need to go through. But when you see projects like the NEP project and, and you know, Cairngorms Connect up in Scotland um, and various others as well, which are, are doing such amazing things in terms of their conservation, then, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll soon follow their lead and, and everyone else will, will, will be doing this. And obviously, you mentioned the Nepostay there, which, you know, is a farm. We see lots of headlines at the moment saying that changes in farming practices have resulted in wildlife, in wildlife declines. Do you think that farming practices will change to accommodate wildlife more than they currently are in the future? I would never aspire to, to, to sort of go into politics. I don't want to rule anyone. But mm. if you could give me a week as a minister of farming, I think I could probably reshape the world so it was better for farmers and better for wildlife. Not on my own. I'm not an all-encompassed expert on these things. But I could I could find some experts and build a team. But, you know, it's very clear that 86% of the UK's landscape is farmed and forested. And far, farming practices, not farmers, but farming practices have led to enormous collapses in, in biodiversity as it's intensified and its dependence upon chemicals has grown and grown and grown. Now, we all know that there are environmental stewardship schemes in place. We all know that they're difficult for farmers to implement, uh, that, that they're not paid enough um, and that they're 
you know, that, that, that often those schemes aren't suitable for the lands that they do. But I mean, I go on to, you know, increasing numbers of farms where the motivated farmers, those who have a keen interest in the landscape and its sustainability and their future and that of their family are, are creating great places for wildlife. Uh, the problem is that in terms of the land area that they are affecting, it's still not big enough to make a significant difference. But there are, it's not just NEP. There, there are plenty of other farms. Martin Line, the, you know, wildlife uh, friendly farming. Um, Henry Edmonds at Childerton is doing great things. There are any number of farmers out there doing amazing things, but they struggle because essentially we don't support them. You know, and that's me and you and everyone else who rushes down to the supermarket to buy cheap food from overseas yeah. and not put our pounds in the pocket of the British farmer who is really struggling. So I think that, you know, it's a bit tricky for conservationists to go banging on the farmhouse door saying, will you do this? Will you do the, the, the other? Um, when we're not actually helping those farmers out. And I think there's a whole reappraisal of the way that the public interacts with interacts with farming that needs to change as well. And, and we do really need to be working you know, together and supporting our farmers. They're, they're having a really, really tough time. Here we are in 2020, and we're still selling New Zealand lamb that's come from the other side of the world in the, our supermarkets when British sheep farmers can't make a profit. Well, frankly, as I said, I'm not a politician, but that's insane. Hmm. It's insane for so many reasons. So I think, again, you know, this should be a time where we, you know, rebuild, reestablish uh, very important working relationships with our farmers. And that's not just the conservationists. That's all of us, every single one of us. One of the lasting images shared in the press from the People's Walk for Wildlife was a giant bat flying above the crowds of people marching through Whitehall. Do you think government have paid attention to the growing number of peaceful dem demonstrations taking place? And will they make any real difference to nature? The bat was was an absolute highlight. It was it was sensational, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. It was it was part of a manifestation of a dream come true for me, to be quite honest with you. Um, and it was totemic there, uh, not least for its artistic endeavour, because it was it was a magnificent piece of portable sculpture, <laughs> um, but also because it was a bat, and and people have learned to love bats, and 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 we know how vulnerable they are and how fragile they are. So it was it was a perfect pertinent um you know uh, motif if you like for that people's walk for wildlife um, and, and yes I, I think we have i mean look at you know, extinction rebellion whether you agree with their methods or not you can't disagree with the fact that they have led to the you know our government signing up to a climate and environment emergency i'm certain that wouldn't have happened ha happened without those peaceful demonstrations and from my perspective as long as they are peaceful as long as they are creative and imaginative and they don't just keep doing the same thing over and over again so they get boring, then I think that people power, in its very simple terms, has a, a role to play. We, we, you know, we, we are living in a time where our politics has been horrifically polarised and, 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 and looking after the climate and you know, biodiversity loss is not the top of, of many of our leaders' agenda. I'm talking globally here. And we've got, you know, Scott Morrison, we've got Bolsonaro, we've got Trump. We've yet to see, obviously, what, you know, Boris Johnson and his team will do because they've, you know, had to bust through Brexit and fallen very hard on the face of COVID-19. So we can't prejudge them at this point. But, I mean, I have grave fears that, you know, they will ever put wildlife and the environment in in, in in the right place when it comes to priorities so we we democratically 
we'll have to raise our voices and ask them to do so. And, and I think there'll be an increasing need for that. And, and we'll see it happen. Look at the strength that's been garnered by the youth climate uh, awareness programmes that have come up, Fridays for Future and so on and so forth. Um, they've changed the world. And they've changed their world. And that is something to be applauded and supported from my perspective. Our chair on the Board of Trustees, Abigail Entwistle, has a question that she'd like to ask, which is, what can we do to help the man on the street love bats as much as we do? It's about making those cultural connections, I I think, really. Um, You know, a lot of people have become disconnected from all wildlife. Um, You know, it's something almost like, you know, on a Sunday, you fancy some art, you go to an art gallery. You fancy some history, you go to a museum or a stately home. You fancy some wildlife, you go to a nature reserve. Even we naturalists have kind of forgotten that we should have an expectation that nature is all around us and we live amongst it. But we've started to partition it and as a consequence of that, further disconnected from it. So I think it's about drawing people back to nature. Um, and drawing them to it through things which they engage with far more readily. Um, So that's what they do in school through education. It's what they do in work through whatever work they're doing. And it's what they do in their leisure time. You know, it would be fantastic if, you know, the Premier League on, you know, one weekend a year, rather than wear their sponsors, um, you know, badges on their shirts, wore, you know, UK ENGO charity logos. You know, wouldn't it be great if Manchester United trotted out onto that green pitch with the Bat Conservation Trust logo and, and the 65,000 people in, in, in the stands, some of whom I'm sure would have been into bats, a small percentage, would all suddenly think, Bat Conservation Trust, what's that about? So it, it, that's a highfalutin idea, but I think we've got to use those sorts of things. Remember, you are talking to someone who grew up on Sunday afternoon as a young man watching batman on tv (laughs) with robin um you know and 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 of course there was little scientific you know or chiropteran act you know uh, accuracy between the antics of 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 bruce wayne etc but you know bats need to be part of our culture we we need to see them in everyday life and and if and if that isn't the real animal that's a manifestation of it that we can connect with so you know it's about engaging on social media it's all all of those things that we need to do and this is across the whole spectrum are there any uk bat species you've not seen yet that you'd still love to Yes, let's just think. Which UK bat species haven't I seen? Um, hmm. I, d- I did look for the mouse-eared bat on one occasion. Um, I, it was when there was the one animal hmm. hanging in in that tunnel in the south of England, um, and we were pretty certain where it was going to be. And I went out with some some bat experts, and I failed to see it. It was. <laughs> I mean, it was bat twitching. I mean, it was na- it was it was naughty. But I so desperately wanted to see that animal. You know, that animal was. When you think about it, it was one of the most famous animals that no one had ever seen at any time everyone talked about that one lonely bat in the tunnel um you know year in year out year in year out everyone kind of knew it was there somewhere um and then eventually i had the opportunity to 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 go and see it and um and and failed so you know that was um enormously disappointing um 
I can't think that any of the others that I mean I've done quite well because you know one of the benefits of making wildlife TV programs <laughs> yes that, you know people always imagine it's like you get to go to all, all these places of course that's a privilege the second thing they imagine is that you get to see all these species and yes of course again that's a privilege the best thing however is neither of those the best thing is that you meet people all the time who know more about something than you do but because you're making a TV program they tell you it all straight away <laughs> so my, I'm very fortunate in, in in great part that my life has been a, in a, a living lecture and I get to meet people all the time who tell me fascinating things about whatever it is we've turned up to film. And over the years, yeah, um, we, we've done quite a bit of bat filming and it's been always a, a real treat. And the experts come in and, and, and do their stuff. Bat photography, did a whole load of stuff with that. Bat lures, we did things with, with those on one occasion in Sussex, which were remarkable. Um, a, a contraption that uh, a scientist had made, put it out in the woods and um, the, the, the Betsteins were just flying in. It was, it was absolutely astonishing. Uh, yeah, fantastic. And I do have favourite, I've got to say, I suppose serotines are up there because I love the colour of them. They're beautiful and I like the sort of shape of their heads. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to succumb and go for the cute and say that brown long-eared. It's that moment when the bat worker, you just got them in the hospital and they're in the hand and they crawl up between their finger and thumb and their ears are down and they look a bit like a dog that's been told off. <laughs> and then all of a sudden their ears come up and they completely transform into one of the most remarkable animals. It's just astonishing. And then when you see them, um, you know, and again, using night vision equipment, I have been able to watch them, when, when they're flitting around the outside of trees, picking off beetles and crickets and so on and so forth it's yeah just astonishing and you know those 13 bats over in your house in france and seeing seeing those door bentons on the river in the in the new forest what's been your bat experience and why i love one night when we were up in gloucester uh, in Gloucestershire and um, there was some cattle out in the fields and we had a, a thermal camera and we'd been watching the, uh, the a roost of lesser horseshoe bats and they came out and disappeared and then we couldn't find them and it was we were all a bit disappointed and it was getting later and colder and then all of a sudden um, a group of them turned up and they started flying round and round a Frisian cow that was standing in the pasture and um, for a moment they were sort of orbiting the cow like electrons around an atom and they were flying beneath its legs and all around its head and 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 we had astonishing views of them in terms of the clarity um and and that was just absolutely magic we'd waited a long time for it's always good to wait for those mm, sort of yeah. things if it happens immediately it can be disappointing to be quite honest with you um so a little bit of pain and patience is is required um and and it turned up and i remember thinking that this was the perfect fusion of a rare animal which was difficult to watch behaving naturally um but it was being facilitated by state-of-the-art um technology this thing called the cell camera which was this was one of the very first times that we were able to use it for making television programs and i just sort of thought at that point what an enormous privilege if the young chris lying on the banks of the, of the river with his father all those years ago had, would have known that at some point you know, here was a camera that could see in you see heat in in total darkness and you could witness this you know wonderful simple but wonderful behavior then again you know i'd have burst for the second time to, i think to be honest with you so yeah i mean it's it's interesting days and it's such a paradox and irony for naturalists these days so many things you know so many problems and yet so many more opportunities because of technology and access to some of the species that we care about hmm. And and finally, what is it about the work of BCT that makes you want to support it in the way that you do? I like um, 
I, I, this would probably be unpopular, but I, I, I always tell the truth <laughs> and say what I think. I, I, I've always been drawn to to geeky people. <laughs> I, I, you know, it doesn't really matter whether they're washing machine geeks, you know, supermarine Spitfire geeks, or or railway geeks, or bat geeks. I, 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 I like people who who know a tremendous amount about a little, but want to talk a lot about it. Um, and, I, and I love the atmosphere of them all coming together in a community where the collective energy is you know, virtually uncontrollable. And, and, and they all just want to tell all of their stories, all their anecdotes and, and, and that. And, and whenever I mix with people from BCT, um, <laughs> sorry, because they're all going to be offended now that I've called them geeks, you know, but it's that sort of focus, really. And I, I think, you know, bats require a special energy and dedication. They aren't the most accessible animals, you know. Um, they're, they're not hedgehogs. They're not badgers, um, both of which are nocturnal species but so much easier to encounter and understand uh, that, you know, to understand bats and, to, and to, to learn from them in the field, you, you really have to strive. That really takes effort um, and therefore real focus. And I suppose that, you know, on the geek ladder, the, uh, the bat workers are, are, are above the hedgehog and badger workers. So I'm going to get myself in so much trouble <laughs> for this, but, but you know, it, 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 it's that really. And, and again, I, I like small NGOs, you know, they could, they sort of, stay on message they they do what they say on the can uh, some of the other uh, larger ngos tend to get lost occasionally and they they corporatize and they, they maybe they lose focus but you know things like bat conservation trust uh amphibian reptile conservation butterfly conservation you know they're necessarily sort of restricted by the sort of general and families that they're looking after, but that doesn't mean that they don't do amazing things. And I think BCT are doing amazing things. And, and, and certainly when it comes to developing a better understanding of, of, of our bat fauna in the UK. So I, I, it's a privilege to be a, a, a president. As I say, it's a lifelong interest. I don't consider myself a bat expert. I always learn more than I can tell other people, but the, 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 I find that there's a, a real joy in that. Chris, I know listener, listeners will love have, having that insight from you, even though you've called us all geeks. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, but geeks are wonderful. <laughs> we should we should wear our expertise with and, and knowledge with with pride. You know, we've lived in an age when you know certain politicians have said, "I'm sick of experts." Well, you know, experts are going to get us out of every mess that we get ourselves into. They always have. You know, at the end of the day, you know, it's our scientists that, that will save that day. And it's our scientists that will save our bats days. And not all scientists are in universities and are paid. They are those bat volunteers. They are those bat workers. And, and that's why I salute them. Absolutely. Chris Packham, president of BCT. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. You're most welcome. And a huge thank you to Chris for taking time out of his day to come on the show. You can currently catch Chris presenting Autumn Watch weeknights on BBC Two at 8 o'clock. And to find your local Bat Geeks, sorry, groups, we've put a link in the show notes. We're back in two weeks' time with one of the Butterfly Brothers, Joel Ashton, talking about how you can make your garden bat friendly. Don't forget to subscribe to Bat Chat, and that will ensure the next episode will automatically download onto your device when it's available. Until then, happy Halloween! Now, lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the Batchat logo on, and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of Batchat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mail store. The link's in the show notes. 
Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the Backchat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to Batchat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year. So we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app. And we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow Batchat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.